right, turn in your Bibles first to Acts chapter 8. Shifting gears back into the book of Acts, or not chapter 8, chapter 18, Acts chapter 18. So we've taken a couple of months to cover a couple of chapters in Matthew 24, 25, and we're going to cover a couple of chapters this morning. So radically shifting gears, um, we're going to be going through 2 Corinthians. As we go through 2 Corinthians, we're going to take it big chunks at a time. But we want to be reminded of where we are in the book of Acts. And in chapter 18, again, we're following Paul. And as we're traveling through what's known as the Acts of the Apostles, we're looking at God's workmanship. Here is God at work in his creation, not just when he created the heavens and the earth and man in his image to begin with, but here he is restoring, transforming, and changing people. In cultures, again, these are where the gospel went from Jerusalem as it goes to the ends of the world and the cultures that it is going to. Again, the radical transformation that is occurring in human beings' lives, the radical transformation that has occurred in our life. So we remember the Apostle Paul. He was an enemy of Jesus. At the end of chapter 7, he's there at the stoning of Stephen, agreeing to Stephen dying for his proclamation of who Jesus is. In Acts chapter 8, we're told that Paul is making havoc of the church. He is hunting down believers in the name of God, causing them to, hopefully for him, his heart and his desire would be that they would reject Jesus. And was forcing people to reject Jesus, was arresting men and women, passionate against Jesus. And then we have his radical encounter with Jesus. Again, if we sat with that kind of individual today that was that opposed to you as a believer in Jesus Christ, what would your emotions be towards that individual? And then here we have God exposing his emotions towards that individual. He died for Saul. He saved that man. He's prepared him and created him for his plans and his purposes. And when, G and when Paul encountered Jesus on that road to Damascus, his life was radically changed as he was confronted with truth. Not Paul's truth, but he was confronted with the one who is true. All of his wisdom, all of his understandings of who God is, who God was, he was revealed. Jesus manifested himself to Paul. And that's that cry for us as we are crying for God, reveal your glory to us. Show us yourself. Open my heart today so that I can see you. What are we asking God to do? That we'd have those daily Damascus Road experiences. That we would be um, confronted with who we are apart with the Lord so that those things can be let go of and that we can have full surrender to him every single day, abiding in his amazing grace. Now, as Paul is transformed, Paul was a bold man. He was a bold character before Jesus and after Jesus. And as we watch the Holy Spirit send him into different communities, Paul is there boldly preaching who Jesus Christ is to some who are receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior and to a lot who are opposed to that, especially the Jews in those communities as they are listening to what they believe him to be proclaiming heretical doctrines. There in modern-day Turkey, people took up stones and threw them at his head, and they drug him out of that city and thought him to be dead. 
So Paul, just imagine having stones thrown at your face. Do you think that you would have scars from that? People looked at Paul in his face. They see the sufferings, the marks of Christ is how Paul phrases it in his body. Beaten, arrested, community after community. So that when we follow the journey and all the different accounts that Luke is giving to us, in Acts 18, he shows up, he leaves Athens, and he goes down to Corinth all by himself. Not another believer with him. He's alone. He's in a foreign nation. Jesus is with him. And he's, he lands in the Jewish community there in Corinth, and we're told in Acts chapter 18 that he meets Priscilla and Aquila. They're of the same trade. He gets hired by this couple. He's living with this couple. He's sharing the gospel with this couple. He's in the synagogue week after week, fellowshipping with the Jewish community at the same time, proclaiming Jesus Christ. We're told that Silas and Timothy show up there with him, and he's emboldened to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in Corinth. We have this, this uh, it's in, while he is in Corinth and the Jews are rejecting the proclamation of Jesus Christ where Paul kind of throws up his hands and says, you know what, I'm not going to the Jews anymore. I'm going to the Gentiles. It's in that community and in Acts 18 that he makes that statement. But he doesn't go very far because he goes right next door. And then we're told eventually that the leader of that synagogue places his faith in Jesus and then you got to remember, so I'm, I'm doing all this to give us history before Paul even lands in this community. Because Jesus shows up to Paul in a vision in Acts 18 and tells Paul not to be afraid. And don't be afraid because I'm with you. And whenever God has to show up in our lives to tell us not to be afraid, what are we? We're afraid. we got, we got some trepidation going on. And Paul, again, community after community where he's been persecuted in the name of Jesus, what do you think he expects in Corinth? More persecution, more pain. And not just for himself, but for the community as a whole. And Jesus tells, don't be afraid. I'm with you. I have many people in this city. And I think that Jesus' promise to Paul, those words to Paul, is I've got, there's a lot of people in this city that have yet to hear you proclaim the gospel. And as you and your brothers and sisters proclaim the gospel in this community, many are going to bend the knee to me. And Paul stays there a year and a half. Relationship, long-term relationship as the church is putting down roots in Corinth. And then Paul leaves. And then in that, at some point, Paul sends a letter to the Corinthian church. We don't have that letter. It's lost to us. But then we have what's known as 1 Corinthians, which we already went through. The church in Corinth is having some issues. And they send some people with the letter and with questions to Paul. Help us work through these issues. And that's what 1 Corinthians is addressing, answering questions. Um, they're sitting in pride. They're sitting in division. They're sitting in lifting up different men in opposition to one another of, hey, like, I believe this guy's doctrine and teaching and way and the way he looks and, you know, just fleshly divisions in the body of Christ is what Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians. Then, again, he's committed to them that he is going to, um, that, you know, that he's going to come back. He ends up coming back to Corinth for a visit that is defined as painful. Whatever he came back for, we're told in 2 Corinthians as we get into it, he was going to come through a different way. And for whatever reason, he decided to sail straight to Corinth from Ephesus. 
Again, this, this is a big decision. It's not like you just pop in the car and you drive down the road. I mean, this is days, weeks of travel. This is a huge sacrifice. So whatever's going on in the church, Paul feels that burden and that need to be there to help. But whatever occurred and what was ever going on, when Paul left there, a lot of people were left with pain. There was, there was issues. That what, whatever Paul had to deal with, uh, was painful for the Corinthian church. And as he went back, there's still some tension. Some, again, you can't paint anything with a broad brush. Some are in total agreement and love with Paul and appreciation. There's some agitators there that are in disagreement with Paul, how he handles things, what he looks like, what he was saying, how he was saying it. There's these tensions that are still going on. So now as we have this letter from Paul, this is... This is really his fourth letter to this congregation. And he is responding to them as he's, as he's hearing testimony come back to them. He is, he is preparing them for his soon arrival. He is going to come back to this community. This community has responded to him positively, but at the same time, there's a lot of relationship tension going on. And Paul's ultimate exhortation in their relationship with him is before you and I even deal with each other, you need to be reconciled with God is what he's encouraging the Corinthian church as a whole. So now as we turn to 2 Corinthians, I'm going to read just a few uh, you know, brief statements about um, different commentators' ideas, uh, you know, the, the ideas that lift off the page of what Paul is addressing to them, why he's saying the things that he's saying, because when it comes to the specific circumstances, we're, we're pretty ignorant and blind to. There's a lot of debate upon why Paul, the, the specific issues that Paul is addressing, which is good because as, as it's vague for us, it allows God to apply um, these words into our relational tensions and not just relegated to something specific. So here's some different ideas and helps again get the flavor of the culture of Corinth and at the same time Paul's relationship with the believers that are there. Second Corinthians shows that Paul's attempts to persuade the Corinthians to follow Jesus's ways instead of the ways of their culture were still very much in progress. Again, that's a reality that we can sit in today. That's for many. We are in, con- not many, for all of us. We are in constant tension with the ways of our culture and the ways of Jesus. We're all works in progress. The breach between Paul and the Corinthians was not simply over theological issues, but had its roots in Corinthian cultural values that clashed with Christian values that he wanted them to adopt. The Corinthian correspondence reveals that they were not yet comfortable in living out the scandal of the cross. But Paul kept calling them back to Christ crucified. Listen to that again. These letters, they reveal to us, they reveal to them that the Corinthians, they were not yet comfortable with living out the scandal of the cross. But Paul kept calling them back to Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians was a public rebuke of their worldly aspirations, and some did not welcome his reproof or accept his advice as authoritative. 
They may have been chafed at his adamant refusal to humor their pretensions of glory. Paul consistently attempts to reverse the honor-shame value system that corrupts the Corinthians' grasp of the gospel so as to root out arrogance and power-mongering. And because of Paul's life of suffering, this last one says, some Corinthians apparently did not share the same appreciation for this selfless suffering. To them, Paul cut a shabby figure. Religion, in their mind... Is supposed to lift people up, not weigh them down in suffering. They may well have asked how someone so frail, so afflicted, so stumbling in his speech and visibly afflicted with a thorn in the flesh could be a sufficient agent for the power of God's glorious gospel. As we travel through 2 Corinthians, we're going to watch Paul addressing all of these emotions um, with the Corinthian church. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to cover the first two chapters this morning. And it just so worked out that I have two C's, two D's, and two F's and a J. Okay? We've got seven words. If you don't get any of them, just get the J. What does J stand for? Jesus. One of the astounding things, when you sit in Paul's letters, you sit in any of the New Testament, it is overwhelmingly robust constant um, exhortation for us to get back to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Every The other six words that we're going to cover this morning, just, just, in, just in topic and subject matter of what Paul is covering, it's like he addresses this subject and then takes us to Jesus. He addresses that subject and then takes us to Jesus. We see Jesus so much that if somebody came in here and talked about Jesus this much, every single one of us would probably say, can you tone down Jesus just a little bit? Every, for every problem that Paul encounters throughout his letters and his interactions with believers, what is his solution? Jesus. Everything. What are you dealing with? You need Jesus. Do you have an addiction problem? Jesus is your only source of deliverance. Do you have a pride problem? Jesus is your only source of humility. Do you have a worldly possession problem? Jesus is your only source to reveal to you that everything in this life is temporary and only he is eternal. Do you have a, do you have a problem with being compassionate? This is one of the words that we're going to deal with today. Jesus is your only source of being able to be compassionate. The answer to everything is Jesus. We'll keep saying that until Jesus comes back and we'll keep saying that for all eternity. Can't wait for him to unveil his glory. Can you imagine? All right, here we go. Chapter 1, verse 1, 2 Corinthians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. And this is where we're going to pause first. Here's our first two C's, compassion and comfort. 
And this is, the word compassion came up on Wednesday night at the, in the men's Bible study. We're talking about, in Romans, the exhortation to, to love each other, to love our neighbor. And Chris took us back into the parable of the good Samaritan, the compassionate Samaritan. And just really sitting in that word on Wednesday night, and it, it followed into our discussion. Julie's, uh, uh, when I came out of the room, Julie's preparing for Jonah on the next night, and um, it, our conversation kept going in regards to compassion. The idea with Jonah's lack of compassion, Jonah was more compassionate towards a plant than he was towards people created in the image of God. Again, yeah, I mean, that, that was in our conversation. There was just conviction, like how often am I more compassionate to an inanimate object than I am towards another human being. There's many ways in my life that I'm a very compassionate person and there's other categories in my life that I'm not compassionate at all. But here, this is why I had Amber go back to Exodus 33 and, and uh, you know, just as they were preparing the song this morning, it's, Lord, open the eyes of my heart so that I can see you and this, this proclamation of his holiness and his glory. Moses' desire, God, I want to see your glory. And then he kind of sit back in that, wait a minute, how much has Moses already participated in in seeing the glory of God in his life? The 10 different miraculous wonders where God stretched out his arm and delivered the Jews out of their slavery in supernatural miracles galore. Delivers them through the dry bed of the Red Sea as God had parted it. Singing a song of salvation in Exodus 15 as, as those waves come down upon the Egyptian army. Standing there day in and day out, the pillar of cloud that is leading them by day, the pillar of fire that is leading them by night. The tabernacle eventually being built, and there, there is God dwelling in their midst. And what does Moses want to see? Moses had already been on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights in intimate fellowship with God as God's finger writes the Ten Commandments on two tablets of stone. When Moses comes down from there, the people are turned back to idolatry and he throws those tablets down. And there Moses is interceding on behalf of the people. Lord, if you do not go with us, we aren't going anywhere because we are nothing apart from you. God, show me your glory. And then when God says, I'm going to declare to you the name of the Lord, I'm going to declare to you my name, when he puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and covers him with his hand, the first description God chooses to give of his name is that God is merciful. God is compassion. The, the testimony that we have of Jesus in the New Testament is he is interacting with different people, groups of people and individuals. What is a word that is repeatedly used? Jesus was moved with compassion for people. To the woman caught in adultery, to the multitudes that were without a shepherd, he was moved with, not just a noun, not just a definition of who he is, but that verb of compassion. He is merciful and compassionate. I love that word. He, our God, 
the Father is the Father of mercies. Jesus being the Son, being God in the flesh, demonstrating compassion. And not only is he the Father of mercies, our Father is the God of all comfort. And this word comfort plays throughout the rest of the letter. And comfort is, it has the idea of you are calling somebody alongside of yourself to help. So in the Gospel of John, chapters 14 through 17, when Jesus is saying that I'm returning to the Father, but we're going to send another helper, that word for helper is paraclete, the one, the Holy Spirit, who is called alongside to help. God of all comfort. It's a description of who he is. He is the God of encouragement. He is the God of consolation. He is the God of comfort. Now these ideas of God being the father of all compassion and the God of all comfort, these main anchors, they play through the rest of this letter in regards to Paul's relationship with the Corinthians, our relationship with God, our relationship with one another is to be motivated by this. Because look, because God is who he is in our life and he is creating us to be in his image back to him and to each other. Verse 4. This God of all comfort, he comforts us in all, all our tribulations. Tribulations, it's, it's those things that you feel confined in. It's pressure. There's no way out. That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. Who God is to us, we are to be to others. With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, they are an excess in us. Think about the testimony of Paul's life. So our consolation also abounds and is in excess through who? Through Jesus. So Paul's taking, here's the tribulations of my life, here's the tribulations of your life. This is who God is, and we only access who God is through who? Through Jesus. Our tribulations and our sufferings, they're in excess, but so is our consolation through Christ. Verse 6, now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation, your comfort, and salvation which is effective. Your salvation is effective. It is working for enduring, remaining under the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or, if we are comforted, it's for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know That as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will be partaker, you will partake of the consolation. So again, Paul dealing with tribulations and with sufferings to begin with, the declaration of who God is, because it seems that the whoever the tension that's going on, whoever is standing in opposition to who Paul is and the life of the Corinthian church. They're pointing at his sufferings and his tribulations to remove his authority. And Paul is saying, wait a minute. We all have tribulations. God is the God of all comfort through all tribulations, through all sufferings. He comforts us, he encourages us, and he does that in a way which enables us to comfort one another, whether we're being blessed 
or whether we feel like the whole world is crashing upon us. Verse 8, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia. We're not trying to hide these things. That we were burdened. Listen to this. We were burdened beyond measure. This is literally a, a hyperbole. Is, it, well, the Greek word is hyperbole. It's where uh, this, it's an extreme exaggeration is how we use it. Uh, you know, it's raining cats and dogs. That would be an extreme exaggeration. That we were burdened beyond measure. Above strength. Above our ability. So think about it. I mean, this. think about weights being placed on you that you have no ability to get yourself out from underneath. It's above your strength. So that, listen, even Paul, so that we despaired even life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. Now again, look at, the, look at the circumstances. Here is circumstances of life, the trouble that we had. It's, it's beyond even imagination. But even in the midst of that, we didn't trust in ourselves. Who did we trust in? Takes it back to we trusted in God. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. God raises the dead. Who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. This is our first D, which is deliver. Look at what God has done. So in verse 10, the moment you step into faith in Jesus as the Son of God who was sent to die your death, to pay your price, to ransom you, to deliver you. And this word for deliverance, it's not the typical one for salvation, which is sozo in the Greek. This one, it's, the, it's to rescue, to snatch, and to drag. I mean, how many of you have felt like God has just grabbed you by the collar and just dragged you? Out of your circumstance, out of a situation, has dragged you in deliverance. You know, just snatched you and grabbed you to himself. This is this idea. God has already, past tense, he has delivered each one of us that moment on the cross. To step into that deliverance requires us to express faith in who Jesus Christ is, to trust him, right? He has delivered us, not only past tense, but present. He is delivering us, who has delivered us from so great a death, and does, present tense, does deliver us. It's in him that we not trust, but in him that we hope, our confident hope is in him that what? He will still deliver us in this life and ultimately on that day when he shows up. Our second D is determination. Paul giving a lot of testimony here, beginning verse 12. For our boasting is this. The testimony of our conscience, the witness of myself, that we conducted ourselves... In the world, in simplicity and godly sincerity. Simplicity means singleness. For the name of Jesus alone, in godly sincerity, purity, 
which purity is a huge concept in the word of God. Not with fleshly wisdom, not with expertise of my flesh and the world's wisdom, but by the grace of God. This is how we conducted our lives in this world, is through the grace of God. And more abundantly, in excess towards you, Corinth, we are not writing any other things than that which you read and understand. You already know all these things. Now I trust you will understand, even to the end, also, as also you have understood us in part, you know, they, you have not fully understood our, our life, what we're doing, why we're doing it is what he is saying. But I trust that you will understand in the end that we are your boast, as you also are ours, in the day of the Lord Jesus. Again, like just the, the relationship that we get to have with one another in this life, we're our boast in the presence of Jesus on that day that he returns as we have served and encouraged one another in the name of Jesus in this life. What a day. Verse 15. And in this confidence, this persuasion, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia. So he's telling them, reminding them of what his travel plans were to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning to do this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I planned to do, uh, I planned according to the flesh that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no. So what he is saying is the plans that I, you know, here's the plans that I had to travel and his travel plans failed. He didn't do what he was saying that he was going to do. So there seems to be, uh, there's an issue and tension there. So Paul is saying, when I was planning to do this, was I trying to be contradictory in my words to you? Was I trying to say out of one side of my mouth, yes, and the other side out of my mouth, no, contradicting myself? No, he says, verse 18, but as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no, not in contradiction. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Sylvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen. Let it be. To the glory of God through us. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God who also has sealed us and given us the spirits in our hearts as a guarantee. Again, I love it. He takes this scenario, this is what's going on, here's some tension and conflict, and brings it right back to who God is in all of our lives. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, I'm not your master, but we are fellow workers for your joy. For by faith, by faith in God is where you stand. But I determined this within myself, that I would not come to you, come again to you in sorrow. For if I made you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? So here's this idea that Paul came not through Macedonia, but he ended up coming directly to Corinth to deal with whatever needed to be dealt with. 
And in that, it was a, a meeting that caused sorrow in the whole group as he left. There's, there's reconciliation that needs to occur, but the words that Paul had to speak, they needed to be done. But he doesn't want to come again with that same kind of heart. He wants them to be reconciled with God and right with God before he shows up so that they can be right with each other. This is the idea that we're going to see conveyed through this whole letter. So he's determining not to come to them. Why? You're, you make me glad. And I don't want to be made sorrowful by the ones who make me glad. I love you. And I don't want us to be in tension and in pain with one another. I don't want to come to you in sorrow. I want to come to you in gladness and rejoicing in the name of Jesus. Verse 3 says, I wrote to you this very thing. So that was the, that whole long section. That's where I did the second D for determine. Just Paul determining in his life, what does he determine to do? To know nothing and no one other than Jesus. To bend his knee to Jesus to let all his plans and purposes to be in Christ and allow him, allow God to do whatever he may do in our lives. Verse three, the first F is forgiveness. And I wrote to you this very thing, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those for whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. So this is this letter sent between what we have as First and Second Corinthians, this painful letter written with tears, not so that they would be grieved, but so that they would know and understand the love that he has so abundantly for them. Paul was an amazing testimony of a transformed man for sure. Verse five, but if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe, you haven't grieved me, but yeah, you all caused me some grief is what he's doing. Verse six, the punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Now listen to this, this is... um. Whatever Paul had to deal with, he's got to deal with a specific individual. The church has responded to that, and they have censured and punished this individual. He's encouraging them that they ought to be forgiving and gracious, is the word there, to be gracious and comforting to him. Why? Lest perhaps this individual be swallowed up with too much sorrow. This is where we can sit in our, our current cancel culture, as it's known, or anybody who does anything that's just a little bit off in the, in the eyes of the mob is just totally cut off. Again, whoever this individual is, if it's talking about that man that was addressed in regards to, in 1 Corinthians, maybe, maybe not. But here the church has cut this man off and now he's being, they're being told to be gracious and comforting to him because this man is obviously, waltz, you know, he's wallowing in sorrow and the assumption is in true repentance that that individual who has repented sought the Lord for cleansing we need to be gracious and encouraging and comforting to such individuals why because all of us mess up every day and the God of all comfort comforts us 
And the comfort that he grants to us is the comfort that we're supposed to demonstrate towards each other. Verse 8, therefore I urge you, I comfort you is the word. I encourage you, I console you to reaffirm your love to him. Confirm your agape is what that says. Verse 9, for to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one. For your sakes in the presence and the face of Jesus, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And this is one of his devices in the body of Christ to cause division. It's for that individual who messes up. Let all those who are holier than that one Start throwing the stones and condemnation and judgment. X them out. I can't believe this person did this. They made this mistake. They are forever cast out of this fellowship. Heap coals and fire and ashes. Judge them. Get them out of this community. They have no part here. They are not holy. We are the holy, frozen, chosen. And it's all about us. You know, I mean, this is the heart that he is coming against. If that individual that has had to have a public punishment from the body of Christ for whatever the sin may be, and that individual has demonstrated, demonstrated repentance towards God, not just of mouth, right? This, is, this person is with David in Psalm 51. My sin is always before me. Wash me. I am broken. My heart is contrite. Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. That individual, the body of Christ, is to extend gracious, comforting forgiveness and welcome them back in. And it's not without wisdom. There's, there's, the Holy Spirit is going to walk that path of restoration with each individual. But the church is not to stand back from that incidence because that type of incidence happens in the body of Christ all the time. And Satan will use those types of things to cause divisions in the body of Christ, will cause the body of Christ to turn into their own self-righteousness rather than continually pressing into the righteousness of Jesus and Jesus alone. Our last F is fragrance. And this is, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I got a lot of favorites and this is one of them. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord. I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Now, thanks be to God. Listen, this is such a promise. Grace, literally, grace be to God who always leads us in what? In depression, in defeat, in discouragement, no. God always leads us in triumph in Christ, in Christ alone. And through us, listen, through you and through me, through all believers, what does God do? He diffuses, he manifests the fragrance, the odor of his knowledge in every place. For... We are to God the fragrance, the sweet-smelling fragrance of Christ 
among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. He's sufficient for these things. For we are not as so many peddling the word of God. It is of sincerity, but as of from God. So we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Listen, Paul is proclaiming his testimony. He is giving a defense of himself and his ministry to the church at Corinth once again. This section where he says that he departed from Macedonia, this is just for an outline help in 2 Corinthians. He doesn't turn back to that subject matter again until chapter 7, verse 5, so when they came to Macedonia. So the section in between these two little bookends, Paul is giving a defense of himself and his ministry. And it's not really of himself, it's of who God is in him and who he is in God. But this idea, he is giving gracious thanks to God who has always led him and leads all of us in victory in Jesus Christ all the time. In our lives, as God dwells in us, he is seeking to diffuse, to manifest this idea of a fragrance. You can just, you can see the, you know, just imagine a fragrance floating through the room. And the fragrance is what? The fragrance of what? Us? No, because you all stink, and so do I. The fragrance of his knowledge. We're talking about the Lord, and we watch Paul already do this in this letter. Every circumstance, he's diffusing the fragrance of Christ, of the knowledge of God to them. We are to God, to the Father, we are to him this, this fragrance of Christ, not only to him, but in the midst of those who are being saved and in the midst of those who are perishing. Here's the reality. And this is where um, sometimes, regardless of what you do, just in your obedience to Christ, people are going to think you stink. I find this fascinating because this, is, this has always been in total contrast to my um, just desire for God from the moment that God revealed himself to me and th- as he's revealed himself to me through others. Um, God and believers have never been a stench to me. This aroma of death. We think about Paul as he's going from community to community That's the testimony of his life as he is proclaiming the gospel to many that are hearing that. He stinks. It's Rome of death leading to death. But to others, those who are being saved, the aroma of life leading to life. And then Gordon brought up this question this morning and just... (laughs) Lord, who is sufficient for these things? None of us. He's going to get into the sufficiency of Jesus' grace later on in this letter. Paul's defense, I am not peddling the word of God to you. I'm proclaiming the word of God to you in sincerity, in singleness. It's from God. And the words that I speak, they are in the sight of God. 
in the sight of Jesus. So again, I don't, as we chew off a big chunk this morning and all these different words in these different sections, the big words for me are compassion and fragrance that just, that just hang out out there. I'm asking God to continue to create in me a heart of compassion, a heart of humility, um, that as I interact with other human beings, that I want to leave the stench of Blake behind. I want to leave the stench of religion behind. But that, Lord, diffuse your fragrance out of me as I abide in you, as I pursue you. And the relationships that we have in this world, I don't know how many of you are dealing with a, an offensive relationship right now. Or how many would look at you as the offender because you are standing before them imaging Christ to them. And your image of Jesus in truth to them is a stench and it's offensive. That's not a comfortable position to be in. We're told to let us not to be offensive. If people are going to be offended, let Jesus be the one who's doing the offending, not us. So we don't need to be there with a the fist in people's mouth and being offensive with our language and our attitudes and our hearts. Lord, create in me a heart of compassion. And if people are going to be offended, if people are going to stumble, let them stumble at you and not me, Lord. But just as we continue to go through Corinthians, we're going to be in this for a few weeks more for sure. The entire letter, the entire subject matter that Paul is dealing with is this need for each individual and for the community to be in right relationship with God, to be reconciled with God. Whatever is off this community, the Corinthian community as a whole, there's, there's, there's something off between them and God. And what they have off between them and God is creating an offness between Paul and the Corinthian church. And this, this preaches the same thing to us in all of our relationships. We need to make sure that we individually are reconciled with God, that we are in right standing with God the Father through Jesus Christ in a position of forgiveness, in a position of being cleansed, in a position of his righteousness, that as we have tension and conflicts with relationship and with other human beings, that if I am right with the Lord, then as I engage these tense relationships, that it's not going to be me who's offensive. It's going to be the Lord that's offensive because I'm going to engage with you in the name of Jesus Christ, not in the name of Blake. Now, I engage with you all, my wife, my kids, my coworkers, strangers in the name of Blake all the time. And again, the Lord is there to, in conviction. He is there in leading. He is there in cleansing and sanctification. Lord, lead us on your pathway of righteousness. So Lord, we love you. We commit ourselves to you. We bend the knee to you. Jesus, it is you and you alone who are you're our savior you're the compassionate one you're the comforter you're the deliverer it's in you that we make our plans Lord you're the one who has forgiven so we forgive it's your fragrance that you have poured into our lives and it's your fragrance we desire to emanate out of us Lord, have us, have all of us, our minds, our hearts, our mouths, our hands, our feet. Use us in this world, Lord. 
But as we walk with you, show us your glory. Let us see you, Lord. Let us smell you. Let us hear you. Let us taste you. May you reach out your right hand and touch us. In Jesus' name.